0: Greetings on Thursday, August the 14th of the year 2014. My name David Thompson. <clears throat> briefly, I, briefly, for those that are new, I want to mention that I am here to seek to minister the Word of God as the Word of God commands us to minister it. And Peter, we are commanded by the Apostle Peter, who said by the Holy Spirit, if any man minister, let him minister as the oracles of God. We are to seek to allow God to speak through us his words so that we are speaking in the Spirit of God words that are not just merely our own words. And this comes out of being conscious out of a consciousness that comes from a focus of worship, even while we are speaking and sharing what we are sharing, which allows the Spirit of God to rise up and come through our mouth with life. As Christ said, the words I speak are spirit and our life. And part of what I do is I cast lots on the scripture In order to seek God's leading that I may speak what he is wanting to speak to the body of Christ. And there's other ways that I get the leading of God's spirit. But certainly the scriptures filled with verses that discuss how God uses the casting of lots. It was often used from the very beginning of time and throughout various powerful movements of church history such as the Moravians. Okay. Okay. I will first mention the passage I received today. It is 1 John chapter 2. I do not know what's going to come out of this because I only spend about a half an hour meditating on a chapter each day and making an outline or notes like an outline or sometimes just notes. But I am trusting God to speak through what I receive today. And so first I will read 1 John chapter 2. My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And hereby we do know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him, He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk, even as he walked, speaking of Christ. Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment which ye have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which ye have heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you because the darkness is past and the true light now shineth he that saith he is in the light and hateth his brother is in darkness even until now he that loveth his brother abideth in the light and there is none occasion of stumbling in him but he that hateth his brother is in darkness and walketh in darkness, and knoweth not whither he goeth, because the darkness hath blinded his eyes. I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write unto you, fathers, because ye have known him that is from the beginning. I write unto you, young men, because ye have overcome the wicked one. I write unto you, little children, because ye have known the Father. I have written unto you, fathers, because ye have known him that is from the beginning. I have written unto you, young men, because ye are strong, and the word of God abideth in you. And ye have overcome the wicked one. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. And as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out, that it might be made manifest that they were not all of us. But ye have an unction from the Holy One, and ye know all things. I have not written unto you because ye know not the truth, but because ye know it, and that no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar? But he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ. He is Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. Whosoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father. But he that acknowledgeth the Son hath the Father also. Let that therefore abide in you which ye have heard from the beginning. If that which ye have heard from the beginning shall remain in you, ye shall also continue in the Son and in the Father. These things have I written unto you concerning them that seduce you. But the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you. And ye need not that any man teach you. But as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie, and even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before a man is coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. In verses one and two, John the apostle addresses the body of Christ by calling them his little children. This is not a condescending mindset, but rather a heart that is filled with great love as a father would for his own children. And it is in that sense that the early church is receiving what the Apostle John is saying to them. The Apostle John is saying you are ones that are very precious like my own children and that I want to share with because I want you to know a closeness with myself but also with God. And so he says, I'm writing to you, and one of the main reasons I'm writing to you is because I do not want you to sin. And he emphasizes what is necessary as one of the essentials to live a life where we do not sin. And that, of course, is mentioned in the prior chapter where it mentions, starting in, let's say, verse 8, the last three verses there. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. There is first the need to be aware of our utter need to always depend on God to expose deception in our lives, to never have a proud and presumptuous attitude like we think we can stand as if it's within our own selves to stand and be able to be without corruption, without deception. So that is one of the important things that the Apostle John is talking about in the beginning of chapter 2. And the other is that out of that awareness that we also know that we can actually Instead of denying that we have certain things in our lives, bring those things before God in confession and know that because we are acknowledging it is sin and therein having a true heart of repentance over it, that God is faithful and just to forgive our sins. But not only to forgive us our sins, but to cleanse us from the desire that's behind that that has caused the sin in the first place, that has caused the unrighteousness. It is important that we do not enter into a deception where we say, oh, we don't sin, and we don't need God's forgiveness. We do not need his mercy. Because Paul the Apostle in the last verse of Chapter 1 says that if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now, the reason that we make God a liar is because it is a denial of our need for God. And a denial of our need to abide in God. And the reason it is that denial is because it is a refusal to recognize, first of all, in God, who is ultimate perfect love, that aspect of God's love, which is clearly defined in the way I teach as the integrity of God's love. That is the love of God that is a blazing fire of judgment against the slightest that is contrary to his love. And love can be defined in God, that is the agape love of God, as a choice as always choosing the highest lasting good over any more immediate choice of gratification that would be less than that. And this is coming out of total free volition in God with no corruption because these choices are guarded in the integrity of this love which is a blazing fire of judgment against the slightest that is contrary to such choices that are ultimately perfect, ultimately onto the highest lasting good. This aspect of God is known as the holiness of God. And I often start my messages by describing the being of God in his ultimate love, in first the aspect of the holiness of God, which is the foundation for God's creativity to be expressed without corruption and to ever enlarge without corruption in greater and greater realms of creativity and a fulfillment without end. And this creativity that issues out of the foundation of God's holiness, which, as it were, is represented as an ultimate negative, which is a flat line, a horizontal line, which represents foundation, out of that comes the positive, which is the line in the opposite direction that goes upward, speaking Of life, of resurrection, of creativity, that only can find its foundation in that which has no corruption in it, which is this love that has this integrity. And that is ultimately expressed in a love that is creative to the degree that God can provide destiny and purpose to his creation, which he has created not as robots but as beings that have their own free will that are the source of their own action and as such are self-responsible. And of course, that is the reason why we cannot blame God for the things that are wrong in our lives or blame God for creating the devil or, or all the suffering we see because all of those are the result of beings being created with the capacity to love, which is only possible when they have the capacity to be totally self-originating in choice, and that being totally free. And without that, there would not be a creation that could love God or that would have meaning or purpose or destiny or fulfillment. It is only in love and the capacity to love that this is possible. And, of course, God's purpose is that even though there is the potential of hell by creating free will, his ultimate intent is that we would be brought into complete harmony with his being that has this integrity. What is wonderful is that the foundation of this holiness of God or this integrity of the love of God The issues in creativity is manifested in the fact that God's love is so great that he can actually become the one that can be the very source of forgiveness. And this was recognized from the very beginning of time, from the time of Adam and Eve, that God was the source of forgiveness. There are many verses throughout the Old Testament that make this very clear. To recognize that God is the source of forgiveness is to recognize that he is also the source of mercy, and to recognize at the same time that God's being and the integrity of his love requires judgment is to recognize that it is only in God that that judgment could be dissipated. That in other words, gods had, had, they recognized that God had the moral capacity of such a perfection of integrity in his love to the degree that his creativity could be expressed to the point of taking judgment upon himself as a perfect atoning sacrifice for his creation. In other words, they recognized it was possible because God had such a moral capacity that it was indeed within God to become a perfect atoning sacrifice. Whether this was conscious or by revelation, even intellectually, they would probably have come, many of them, to such a conclusion for they were very intelligent and had greater mind capacities than we have today in the pre-flood world, and that evidence has been shown by scientific study. Nevertheless, at the same time, they were provided animals as a sacrifice and were commanded to lay their hands on those animals as a symbol of their sin being transferred onto the animal. They recognized And it says this even in the New Testament, that animals could purify their physical being from sin, but could not represent their soul and their spirit. But they recognized it could cleanse their physical being so that they could receive forgiveness and that God's presence could come. It wasn't the animal that was the source of forgiveness. The animal could only cleanse in the physical but it allowed God's presence to dwell with their soul and spirit, but not to indwell their soul and spirit. This could only come after Christ himself actually died on the cross. Then our soul and spirit could be cleansed. This is why it says in the word of God, Christ said before he died on the cross, you know him for he dwells with you, but shall be in you. It is the knowing of God that is the evidence of genuine rebirth. This is not an intellectual knowing. This is a knowing of the heart. That knowing comes when there is the dwelling of God's spirit with them before Christ and in our soul and spirit after Christ. I explain this at the beginning of many of my messages to lay a foundation before expositing a chapter of Scripture. Not always. Sometimes more, sometimes less, sometimes not at all. But it is important to lay a foundation to bring out what the Apostle is trying to bring forth here to the early church. And that is the understanding that forgiveness of sins is Out of coming to the place, as it says in this last verse in chapter 10, where we don't make God a liar. And the way we make God a liar is when we're deceived to not acknowledge the holiness of God, as happened to Cain, because he was upset at the consequences of God's holiness with the curse and probably other things that were the consequences of suffering. And so you become hardened and all caught up with trying to survive instead of spending time seeking God, and you begin to view God as an enigma, as someone that's afar off because your heart is hard. And you begin to develop a perception of God that denies First of all, the holiness of God so that you feel that there is a standard you can reach, that God is not all that holy and that he's only controlling and you lose sight of the goodness that is behind the holiness of God when there is offense before God at what God is allowing. That breeds doubt, and breeding doubt towards perceiving God is to perceive God as less than ultimately trustworthy because you have failed to perceive God's perfection of love as totally pure with no darkness at all or corruption in him. And as a result of that, there is this mistrust that forms one's own image of God and that denies that God can forgive or that we need to come to God out of need for his mercy because we justify a certain standard within ourselves as acceptable before God because of our misperception of God as utterly pure in his holiness as without darkness, and so the result is that there is the justification of things in one's heart that are unrighteous by a false perception that forms a false doctrine, that results in us making God a liar because we say we are righteous When in fact, in our heart, there is the deception of pride that is convincing ourselves that we are righteous against the inner voice of one's conscience. The deep down inside knows they are really not righteous, but it is easy to focus on what we want instead of on a relationship with God, so that we convince ourselves and sear our conscience by the rationale of false teaching or doctrine. And so the Apostle John is warning that the important thing in a relationship with God is first of all to recognize the holiness of God, but to recognize the other aspect of the being of God's ultimate love, which is manifested in a creativity that is Revealed in his mercy that God could actually come down and become a perfect atoning sacrifice. And of course, we have verses in the Old Testament in various places that acknowledge that even if one gave their own body for the sin of their soul, it would not be sufficient to atone for their soul. So they recognized that forgiveness was within God and that it was within only God to be a perfect and atoning sacrifice. Some didn't recognize this fully. It may have been more subconscious in their recognition. Others may have recognized it fully intellectually and by revelation. But people did recognize these two aspects from the time of the beginning, first of the holiness of God, which is the integrity of his love, and secondly of the mercy of God, which in the Old Testament really also speaks of the grace of God with the understanding of that original word being more than just receiving forgiveness when you deserve judgment, but also having favor beyond mere forgiveness with the imparting of God's presence. And so when Christ pointed out the publican and the sinner, and he said, beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, and pointed out to the Pharisees that that man went home, was justified in the sight of God. It was because that man really saw the holiness of God and his utter sin before God and his utter need of the mercy of God. He was not denying God's power to forgive, to show mercy. And he wasn't denying it because he was recognizing first the utter holiness of God and his undoneness before God. And yet acknowledging that God had to provide destiny and purpose to creation. How could God be perfect if he could not provide for his creation the choice to have destiny that is ultimate with meaning and fulfillment? If he creates things that are imperfect, it implies that God is imperfect. But the evidence that God is indeed God is that there is no darkness in God, that he is ultimately trustworthy, and that he is ultimately able to express in creativity that which has total assurance of forgiveness and eternal life or eternal ever-enlarging fulfillment of destiny and individual free-willed beings. He is the propitiation for our sins, as it says in verse 2, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And we go on in this book of First John, And I will just read the bit of the outline I made on the first two verses in 1 John here, and I said this, Acknowledging that we can be deceived to be in darkness and in sin, and knowing that we can be forgiven and cleansed through Christ as our advocate, is the first essential to not sin against God. And I've just explained that. Now the next point is in verses 3 to 6. The evidence that we really know God is in keeping God's commandments and living like Christ lived in this world. It says in verse 3, and hereby we do know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. There are people that say they know God, but they don't keep the commandments of God. They're not living a righteous life, and yet they claim to know God. And the apostle John is saying that such people are liars. They are deceived. The truth really is not in them because it is evident in their life, the way they are living. They're living as adulterers or idolaters or whatever else. But whoso keepeth his word in him verily is the love of God perfected, hereby know we that we are In him. The evidence that we are really abiding in God is not by being puffed up with the cognitations of various teachings that are floating through our mind. It is by a life that is being lived out to the point that it even says here in the last part verse 6, he that says he abides in him ought himself also to walk even as Christ walked. And we know how Christ walked. He lived a life of prayer. He was attempted in all points as we are, and yet without sin. The evidence of a relationship with God always is manifested in righteousness. In fact, the last verse in John here talks about this. The very last verse in this chapter says, If ye know that he is righteous, ye know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of God or born of him. What he's saying here is that if we really know that God is righteous, we'll know that everyone that is doing, that's really living a life that is righteous is brought forth of God. What is he saying here? He's saying that a, if you really are perceiving that God is righteous, that God is ultimate in his perfection of love, which can only be in this integrity of love that will not condone the slightest that is sin, that can be therein transcendent in the manifestation of creativity in, or the expression of love in mercy to assure forgiveness. Only in that perception of God is there a perception that is ultimately trustworthy, that it's truly righteous. And if we really know that that is true, and there is that knowing in our heart that that is who God is, that is really from the heart, not just the mind, then we will recognize those that are living a righteous life that the reason there is that righteousness that's not merely outward performance, that be raised an unrighteousness in heart, but a righteousness that's truly coming from the heart is because they have been born of God. Now, born is another way of saying brought forth of God. What does it mean to be born of God? To be born of God is clearly described, for example, in, for, in John chapter Three, it's also described in First John, where it says, "Whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. So this means the genuine faith is brought forth of God in our being." How? And I've explained this time and time again so that I don't, do not tend to want to go into detail and keep repeating various things. But basically speaking, it is the recognition of who God is, which is a choice to fear God. Basically, the fear of God is choosing to recognize the reality of who God really is in his holiness and in his mercy. In other words, to recognize the fullness of God's love that is totally pure and filled with the power to forgive. And when there is that recognition, we see the mercy of God and our spirit that is like a closed fist then opens up as a surrendered hand, reaching out to what is ultimately trustworthy. One has been persuaded which is what faith means. The word for faith is persuasion. So there's a persuasion that brings an opening forth to the mercy of God like the publican that cries out. It causes a deep circumcision in the heart into which there then comes forgiveness, cleansing, and then the presence of God's spirit to come against that open hand with another open hand symbolizing two hands in prayer or what would look like a seed, the new divine nature a state of selflessness, which is so because when there's genuine faith, there is not trust in anything, but that trust is focused totally towards the creator. And whatever is what we are focusing our trust on is where we are bringing our worth to and our glory and our worship to. So if we trust in our own righteousness, then we are focused on our own performance before God, and we are bringing glory and worth instead of to God, to ourselves, with a false deception of teaching that puts merit in oneself before God. I won't get into all the details of it. In this passage of scripture, we see that righteousness that truly people that are born of God are living a righteous life. And this is mentioned also in John chapter 3. And I believe in John chapter 1 where it says, which were born not of the flesh, nor of the will of man, nor of blood, but of God, which were not brought forth out of the will of the flesh. For example, people that are motivated in their life, and in all they do, out of the desire to please other people, would be the will of the flesh. Which were not born of the will of the flesh or of blood. People that are motivated in their identity and everything they do because of their blood lineage. Which has a root of pride in it. Oh, this is who I am. I, I'm i from this amazing group of people that believes this. And... And it's filled with pride and that's all that they have their identity in and they're motivated by those things. So their life is being brought forth by those motivations. But rather the motivation is an integrity that is in total identity with who God is. That has great awe and reverence towards God because there's been a choice to fear God, that is to recognize God and his holiness and that transcendence of God's holiness that comes forth in creativity of mercy or expression of mercy, love being expressed in mercy. That is the evidence of genuine rebirth is that the motivations are right. The motivations are pure, they are brought forth in their life and in all the motivations and desires that they do, the core motivations are pure. There is not impure motives. And this is an understanding of being born the Spirit of God, is that there is a new nature in us that now has changed our desire, and it is then in a process of growing in an abiding relationship with God. And so he goes on in this passage of scripture, and he says, brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment. And there's so much in this that I realize I will end up preaching for a very long time. So I will have to cut things short. But he talks in this passage of scripture, and he says, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. So, what John is saying here is that this message that he is giving has been from the very beginning, from the time of Adam and Eve. And what is it? It is those two aspects of the Father that I've described. God the Father is that aspect of God and government that is the originator and sees the end from the beginning. But in God the Father, there is the manifestation of this holiness and this mercy or this expression of love that can provide destiny and assurance of forgiveness for creation. And these two aspects, the holiness and the mercy of God that endures forever, these two aspects have been from the beginning of time. When the Father is revealed to Adam and Eve, to Enoch, He is revealed in his holiness and in his mercy. And it is that two-edged sword of the being of God that is expressed by his word from the very beginning of time as an effectual sword that circumcises the heart to genuine rebirth, to know God from the heart by revelation because of a genuine turning in the heart that allows the Spirit of God to abide with them before Christ and indwell after Christ. So brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment. This has been from the beginning. Christ says, whoever has seen the Father has seen me because he is the full expression of the Father, as is clearly mentioned in Hebrews 1.4, that the Son is the full expression of the Father. Again, a new commandment I write on to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past, and the true light now shineth that true light that now was shining after the resurrection or the atoning work of Christ on the cross is the greater full mani- full manifestation of the light that was rising from the horizon, but where there was a lot of shade because it was so low to the point of the center of history where the shade is gone, and it is very clear that God has revealed the secret of this mystery, which is Christ in us, the hope of glory, that involves this relationship that we have with God out of the fear of God through that brings relationship, that brings conversion, because of receiving the holiness and the mercy of God's love. And so that was manifested in its fullness on the cross. And in the context of this, John the Apostle is talking about darkness. And he goes on to say this, if we say we are in the light and we hate our brother, We are in darkness, even though we claim to be in the light. That's what he's saying. That is because if we really saw how great God's mercy was to us, because there was a genuine turning in our heart, we would find ourselves wanting to forgive those that offend us instead of feeding hate. We would be wanting to show mercy, even as God has shown mercy to us. It doesn't mean that we do not reprove those that are doing wrong, but it does mean that in our reproof of wrong and of darkness, it is tempered with mercy. And it does not take offense at the rebellion against us because we speak the truth, but it learns to love those even that would hate us, to hate other people created in the image of God, instead of having love, they would choose to seek to reconcile them to God by taking a step of humiliation towards them in order to bring them to the place where they recognize their need of the forgiveness of God is to walk in darkness. We should never allow ourselves to be offended at the rebellion that is indeed not do, being directed against us, but a, a directed against God. So that we end up buying in to their offense, which is really against God at its root. But he that hateth his brother is in darkness and walketh in darkness. And the other reason is, that they justify themselves as being righteous, even though they are... Sh- harboring hate. There are many relationships in the body of Christ where this happens, where there is a measure of darkness that causes division. It can be over-doctrine. It can even have a good conscience behind the conviction. But ultimately, if we allow the differences to become an issue that would cut off the reciprocation of fellowship with someone. We have come to the place where, where our relationship with God and with them is not as important as our own things that we have begun to cleave onto that are not the source of revelation, but only the mental or the ritual part. God is calling us as his people to repent of denominationalism, to repent of categorizing others and seeing those things that are so wrong in others that we fail to see the diamond in the rough. We fail to have the grace to, like Christ, condescend and show mercy and wash their feet with the word of God even though they're more in the wrong. In order to bring them out of the deception that is in their hearts. The servant of the Lord is not to strive towards those that deceive themselves, but to show patience, peradventure, per they will recover themselves from the snare of the devil. That is what the Word of God says. It is those that truly love that are abiding in the light because they give evidence of their abiding in the light, because the, the, the eye of their heart is reciprocative towards the being of God in his mercy, which cannot be perceived in his mercy without first perceiving the integrity of God's being in holiness and recognizing the goodness of that holiness in its judgment towards sin throughout creation and in one's life personally. people in adulterous relationships. There are many marriages, there are many divorces in the church today. And the reason for those divorces is because of hardness of heart. That's what Christ said. And the hardness of heart is because of beginning to get a focus on the world. And it is this focus on the world instead of on a relationship with God where we begin to make priorities in our life the temporal things. And our busyness forms around those things so that we lose focus on who God is. And our heart becomes hard because we're not in the fear of God, which births humility, out of perceiving who God is through a life of prayer that involves time and commitment. And so the hardness results in not only divisions in the body of Christ, but divorce. And so you will find there are partners that will say, I will never get back with my husband, even though maybe the husband wants the lady to come back. Because they're holding on forgiveness, even though they'll say, oh, I've forgiven him. But they are deceiving themselves and they are failing to recognize that the genuine love of God is like Christ that goes to the place of humility and suffered more than his mere creatures and humbled himself more than his mere creation in order to bring forth a corporate bride unto the Father that the Son would also inherit. I can see that this message would go on for an awful long time and there's a lot more that needs to be shared in this message and cannot be shared for a time. But I have shared enough in this passage of Scripture and so I ask and pray that the measure that I have shared of this passage of Scripture would be a blessing to you, which has only gone up to verse 11. I may continue to do the next half. Tomorrow, I'll just decide on that when the time comes. God bless you for listening to this message on abiding in God. And this is the emphasis in this passage is to abide in the Almighty's one, And the secret to abiding in the Almighty's one is mentioned in the next half in order to overcome those things that would deceive us into a relationship where we are in darkness, thinking that we are in the light. Thank you for listening.